High School Slumber Party is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things Cage Club related, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Welcome, fans of the Fell Dog, fans of Rob Reiner, fans of Richard Dreyfus, fans of Richard Bachman. This is High School Slumber Party, the podcast from Ian's and Friends look back at our teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. I'm Brian Rodriguez, and the party's at my place this evening. School is still in session, and we have some homework to chat about. This was your assignment, and I would like to see the results. I think I missed some words on that intro, but you know what? I'm trying to get you to the episode sooner. That's my logic. Because today we have truly an iconic film. We are talking Stand By Me, and it represents the beginning of our second year doing this, our second year. Corinthians 2, if you will. Two Corys are back Corey Feldman, Corey Haim, we covered a bunch of those films last year. We're covering a bunch of their films this year. And I say we because Mike Manzi is here. Well, in theory, of course, he's on the recording. But I really can't wait for you to hear this episode. First, though, did you do your homework? Did you hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening? Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. While you're there, please give us a five-star review if applicable. Give us a five-star rating. I always do that. No, no, no. Five-star rating, positive review. Do all the things that help us, this little engine that could get you all these episodes every week. Tell a friend. That's a great way to spread the message of High School Slumber Party. And, of course, class participation is a huge part of your grade. Follow High School Slumber Party on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you've caught up on your episodes. If not, I totally understand I've been a little behind myself, but we did release our AP episode with Eyes on Addington, Banana Split, so check that out wherever you get your podcasts, and at the archive at cageclub.me, that's cageclub.me, Banana Split was a really fun movie to talk about, we got really personal on that episode, so definitely have a listen to that, and I can't wait for you to listen to this episode on Stand By Me. But I can wait for you to sit your ass down. And remember that the bell does not dismiss you. I dismiss you. You're seniors. We're getting into the spring now. The end is near for your high school tenure. Chill the F out. Calm down. And listen to your teacher slash slumber party captain. But you're right. I have kept you too long. So let's just do it. Pack your favorite jammies. Tell your mother sleeping at Brian's. Because we're about to get our party on. What other song could I leave you with then? Benny King. Stand by me. Class dismissed.
That time of year again. <laughs> Corey Mania, Corinthians 2, the two Corys. We're back in it. We're going to explore. We're going to do as many as we can until we tap out again. Uh, there's so many. I just reviewed the list. Oh, boy. Uh, what's left? <laughs> a lot. A, lo- a lot, unfortunately. <laughs> Mostly Haim stuff, but we'll get into it. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I just want to say at the beginning, if I may, just get this out of the way that um, over the course of the last few episodes I was on, it's kind of like joking about, you know, what a chore this has been, but it is not. That is just part of the fun I'm trying to have <laughs> with this. Like, I am so glad to be back talking about some Corys here with you, Brian. Yeah, no, I am as well. It's always fun. It's also something, too, that this year, we're spreading out the recordings, I think, a little bit. Last year, it was like two or three a week, Corey films. You oh, know? man. It was, yeah, it was overkill. <laughs> <laughs> so we're trying to be a little bit uh, better about it. And we'll see how many we get to this year. There's always next year to wrap it up. But the, like I said, I looked it up. There's double digits left of Whoa, teen I, films I, that these guys did. So I, we'll I couldn't imagine. <laughs> I never would have thought. Or I never would have agreed. (laughs) (laughs) But we'll pace ourselves. We'll have a good time. We had such a blast last year. So we're starting today, though, with a Feldman film and a big one. But before that, Mike, before we get into 1986's Stand By Me, why don't you reintroduce yourself to the High School Slumber Party faithful? Oh, right. Absolutely. So it's Mike Manzi, RHS, Ridgewood High School, class of 97. Go Maroons. You kind of sounded like you said Spike Manzi, and I was like, ooh. Spike is that, Manzi. Is that like mm. your evil alter ego? Uh, if I had a son, maybe I'd name him Spike. <laughs> Spike Manzi. <laughs> As mentioned, Stand By Me, and they're a little bit younger than high school age, but we do deal with teenagers, and we covered The Goonies. It's a foundational Corey film. We've dipped a little bit under the teenage years in high school slumber party in the past we never go over mm-hmm. but uh, yeah under is okay within reason right yeah yeah and i feel like once you start a series it's kind of no holds barred at some point right like you get you get to a point in a quarry series and you just got to keep going you know <laughs> like one, one way or the other <laughs> and again this is such an important film to a lot of people uh, that's why i really wanted to talk about it and start off with this one, we don't go in order on our Corey laps. We kind of just pick randomly and curate mm-hmm. it that way, which I prefer. This one, though, it, again, it's an early Corey Feldman film. What's your history with Stand By Me? Oh, man. So I remember watching this one probably at the age of the kids in this movie. Wow. I mean, I feel, I don't know. I feel like I'm the same age as Will Wheaton. Let me look this up real quick. So, yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> he's actually 
nine, eight, he's seven years older than me. But okay, so anyway, not even close, but still, <laughs> no, not close. Ballpark, maybe. But the point is, like, I believe I saw this movie when I was the age of these kids in the movie. Like, that's what I'm trying to get at. And it was on HBO a lot, and I was really close with my neighbors and. We were a lot like these kids, like we weren't smoking cigarettes and listening to this music, but we were hanging out together in each other's backyards, running around the neighborhood, um, like exploring stuff and, you know, getting into little kid trouble, that kind of thing. I mean, this movie, I remember watching it just like really kind of, I don't know, spoke to me maybe before I even realized that. And this is the era my dad grew up in. And so like this is him as a teen, as like a kid and a teenager like during these times, I always sort of like thought of that while watching this as well. And I just love the era. I love Rob Reiner movies. I love Stephen King stories. Like it is Ooh. just like a total package. Watching it again for the show, I was just like in heaven. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, Stand By Me is just you know, one of these films that is important to a lot of people, especially of a certain generation. I don't know how much it translates today to everyone, and we'll get into it. But mm-hmm. I feel like, in a, again, that wheelhouse you're talking about, you know, 80s, even early 90s kids watching this, boys in particular, um, you, you know, this was just one of those foundational films like The Goonies. It's very different than The Goonies, but it's similar mm-hmm. in a way. On our Goonies episode with Jordan, we talked about the idea of feral kids, how kids used to just, like, go out and play and uh-huh. outside and hang out and stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Kind of a lost art today for various reasons. Not, not saying it's better or worse how we how parents do things. I don't have a kid. I don't know. When you watch a movie like this, not that it could never happen today, but it would be very rare that four different sets of parents would, like, believe this lie in an age of cell phones, too, and texting and stuff, and just, like, you know, let these kids roam, you know? It, 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 uh, it's I don't cool. know. It's... If one of your friends a hacker or a visual effects artist, you might be able to get away with it easier. <laughs> in this age. But, yeah, no, that, that is a good call, and, like, that is definitely of the age that I grew up in still, where, like, especially during the summer, like, my mom would just open the door in the morning, and, like, you know, you just, you'd come back at night, and, like... <laughs> that's just the way it was and then it was pretty great the goonies uh sort of comparison is pretty spot on and i didn't really think of that until this time around either but i was guess i was also very much into those types of movies as a kid too you know so like kids doing kids stuff didn't really matter what decade it was you know for me this film i don't know if i'd ever seen it just let me sit down and watch it kind of format this was a movie you already mentioned played on HBO. It played on either USA or TNT a lot, one of those networks. And I've seen it a million times, but just catching it on TV midway, you know. And I hadn't seen this film in a while. It was mm-hmm. probably since I was at least in high school, maybe even before that, I hadn't seen Stand By Me in a while. Um, yeah. So I, I was excited to watch it today to see what I remembered, what I didn't remember. But if you're not familiar out there with Stand By Me, every week read the back of the DVD. So here goes. In a small woody Oregon town, a group of friends, sensitive Gordy, tough guy Chris, flamboyant Teddy, and scaredy cat Vern are in search of a missing teenager's body. Wanting to be the heroes in each each other's and their hometown's eyes, they set out on an unforgettable two-day trek that turns into an odyssey of self-discovery. They sneak, smokes, tell tall tales, 
cuss because it's cool and band together when the going gets tough. When they encounter the town's knife-wielding hoods, <laughs> who are also after the body, the boys discover a strength that they never knew they had. Stand By Me is a rare special film about friendship and indelible experiences of growing up. Filled with humor and suspense, it is based on the novella The Body by Stephen King. Lot to talk about here. Um, Ooh, so much to go through. <laughs> first off, though, another one of these movies, not just for you and me, Mike, but in general, that named it after a song, you know? Very popular oh, yeah, in the 80s yeah. and 90s. And we've covered a bunch of the Can't Buy Me Love. And dream a Little even, Dream. Dream a Little Dream. Yeah, like, <laughs> this is so fun. <laughs> so, as mentioned there, it was adapted from a Stephen King story. They were thinking of calling it The Body, but they didn't think that really fit. It was either too horror-esque or even sexual in a sense, right? Like, it doesn't sound like a kid's yeah. movie called The Body, so I get the change. <laughs> Is it about Jesse Ventura? Like <laughs> or that. Where my yeah. kid brain would have gone. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they named it after the Benny King song. Great soundtrack here if you're into music of this era. Oh, so good. I implore people who maybe will watch this for the first time. And realize that like this is one of the first movies to do that, to go back to this era with that kind of soundtrack, right? Now, we at the click of a button, we can get all these songs. But yeah. I could imagine someone like your dad maybe watching this with you or whatever and be like, oh, mm-hmm. I remember that song. Or, oh, yeah, that's a good one, you know? Absolutely. So, so definitely, you know, a lot of nostalgia strings for the people at the time yeah the one thing i think this movie did better than i ever realized now as an adult is what a perfect period piece this is like it looks so authentic i mean it has the added benefit of being a small town castle rock by the way which we're going to have to talk a little bit about oh yeah (laughs) coming up uh but like the cars the music the looks of all the the actors and every the greasers like i mean these are greasers dude like they are scary (laughs) dude yeah like totally just nails it from top to bottom yeah and there there is obviously a nostalgia element to this but it's also not as so for example on high school party ap as of this recording just dropping is the remake the jukebox musical remake of valley girl that we covered and that's like nostalgia glasses like people are in aerobics clothes you know what i mean it's like turn to, to the 11th degree this is a look back in nostalgic eyes but it's not like again it's not like happy days, you know what I mean? It's made from a different generation looking back at a different time. So I feel like this has come up, if not on this show, on a pre- on some other show, on the myriad of shows on the network, but like filmmakers of this time. So like we also get like Back to the Future. When What, what year do they go back to? The late 50s. Uncle Francis does Peggy Sue Got Married. What year does he go back to? The late 50s, you know? All of these filmmakers and a lot of them who knew each other were making movies about their childhoods and about growing up and about like the nostalgia they had. And then you get a movie nowadays like Valley Girl looking back on that filmmaker's like nostalgia for Valley Girl, which wasn't a period piece. But, you know, if you made it today, it would be if you wanted to set it when it took place. You know, like it, it's like this weird pretzel that's going on, like behind the scenes of influence and all that kind of thing but like yeah it just I, I don't know where or when i talked about this before but it feels uh sort of like relatable to this conversation you know like this is this is rob reiner or and stephen king for the most part but like them you know like injecting their love of this era 
for us to sort of discover for the first for a new generation to understand what it was like for them to be kids which I think is awesome. We probably talked about it here on this podcast at some point, but it is also fascinating that every decade looks back at another decade with nostalgia glasses. And it's like super Mm -hmm. interesting to see what that is. I don't, I forgot where, but Chuck Klosterman was on a podcast recently and he just wrote a book on the nineties and he was talking about this, how in the seventies, they looked back at, the 50s, but really like the early 50s, you know, the post-World War II 50s. This is 59. And in the 80s, they were really looking back at like the early 60s a lot, right? So 59 to like mid-60s. Then you start looking back at the late 60s, right? And then in the 90s, people really started to idolize the 70s for whatever reason. And then after that kind of became the 80s, right? Like in the in the early part yeah. of the decade. Well, we got Boogie Nights out of the 90s, at least, to glorify the... For sure, <laughs> the for sure. the 70s. <laughs> and then, you know, now we're kind of looking back at the 90s. A lot of stuff looks back at yeah. the 90s. So it's just... Yeah. It's so weird. And honestly, I feel like I hear this every decade, that it's like, oh, decade X didn't matter. There was really no culture that decade. Like, I can't think of what we're going to look back from the year 2000 to 2010. But you know what? In 10 years, we might all remember it again. So I don't know, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you need to be removed a little bit to put on those nostalgia glasses properly. Yeah, and sometimes you need, like, a fresh perspective, too, right? So I don't know who it would be nowadays. I couldn't come up with a name, per se, or anything, but I would assume, like, at the time, I don't necessarily think Rob Reiner would have been kind of chosen to do, like, what is essentially a a drama. Like, he was more known for comedy. He was Meathead on television. (laughs) Like, Spinal Tap, right? Like, legendary improv rockumentary yeah so i feel like there's also that sort of kick to it too where it's like you get sort of an unlikely person to kind of handle this material and they inject it with like because it's still a very dark movie but it's injected with so much sort of whimsy and you said like love in this which is nostalgia right the love of this time that that these creators have for it that it just sort of gives it this other life and makes it almost more of like I don't want to go as so far as to say it's like a fairy tale, but it's certainly more of like a fable or something. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going into the deep, dark woods to find a dead body. Like, it feels a little Red Riding Hood at times. For sure, for sure. And just like The Goonies, this is so influential in this genre. People say, like, great time to be a kid in the 80s. But like that that's something that I've heard people say, right? But it's also, like, great time for kids' movies, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. And also, what I like about this movie, one, it was shorter than I thought, because then I was probably watching TV versions. It's like an hour and 20-something minutes, which is great. Yeah. Two, yeah. a lot doesn't really happen when you write it all down, but that makes it kind of more about the relationships. Right? Like, okay, back to the Goonies. Yeah. I keep doing it, but yeah. a lot fucking happens in the Goonies, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A yeah. lot of monsters and pirates and things like that. Here, it feels like, though it is a fable, it feels like it's something that could happen to real kids because nothing fantastical yeah. happens. It's just, it feels real. Yeah, yeah. You know, also watching it, I was like, well, we don't really get to have too many movies like this these days where not all that much happens. You know, it almost started feeling like dare I say, Tarantino at times, because they're just sitting there bullshitting about stuff that doesn't really matter, but it's revealing character and things like that, you know? And so 
when moments happen, there's development in between the lines, it seems, you know, right? Like in the dialogue, but not so much in the action in which that's sort of, I mean, film is a audio medium as well as a visual one, but they always say show, don't tell. I feel like this movie tells a lot about, like they're talking a lot about themselves, a lot about each other. I mean, it's narrated for crying out loud. Like that's a very hard thing to pull off in my opinion, but this movie just has a, a lot of tact and it's very precise. And like you said, it's short, it's sweet. And yeah, it's, it's almost just more about that premise, you know, we're going to see a dead body, get from A to B and everything in between is just, you know, not, not bad filler, but like you fill it up with all these little moments and stuff, but they don't, they don't need to have like, you know, they do run out, they outrun a train, there is action and stuff, right? Like they have knives pulled on them. There's a gun involved, like it, it gets exciting and stuff, but, but I know what you mean by like, it's not one of those like. Goonie adventure, booby traps, and all this kind of thing going on. It's definitely a different tone happening here. For sure. And I'm also glad you brought up Tarantino. Um, in doing the research for the film, a lot of like Tarantino scholars have said that, like, specifically that scene in the woods where they're just kind of having conversation, that like Tarantino uses that in a lot of his films, as do other filmmakers. And we might see it as commonplace today, especially if you're seeing this film for the first time. But it was kind of groundbreaking in that respect. So uh, I'm sure it's not the first film to do it, but it's definitely influential in that way. A lot of filmmakers have have cited this film as a film that has influenced them. Yeah, and it just has sort of the the material is there and the people behind it want want the spirit of it to be there. And it just has this sense of like, you know, and there's even sort of alludes to this in the movie where it's like these kids are people and like these are fully formed personalities and stuff. And I don't know exactly what I'm trying to get at per se but like there's just something a little more tangible about the characters overall and it like doesn't dumb down that's the it. story for kids right like yeah it allows the children to be treated like people not children like they're not necessarily being treated like adults but but they're given so much like i don't know like there's they're just given like a lot of uh like i don't want to say credit or, or any of this kind of but it's just like there's trust there right that like Let's just let these children, let's let these kids, you know, just treat them like people. Don't treat them like children or whatever. Like they're just people. And that's how this movie feels like they're not condescending these children or, you know what I mean? Like the portrayal of these kids doesn't feel condescending in any way. Whereas I feel like sometimes in the Goonies, you do get get that level. Yeah, they're both kids movies. They're just <laughs> different levels of kids in a sense. One, well, one's a fantasy and this is just a different kind of fantasy. I don't know. In terms of inspiration as well, when we covered uh, Boys in the Hood on this podcast, John Singleton said like he was so influenced by Stand By Me for Boys in the Hood. I think they even take that line like, oh, you guys ever see a dead body in Boys in the Hood when oh, they're right. when they're like in the younger ages? And I keep saying this and I want to stress this, that if you are watching this movie for the first time, maybe you're if you're a listener out there and you're not in our generation like you and me, Mike, and some things feel formulaic. I want to say that maybe, but a lot of it is not. A lot of it comes from this. This is a foundational film in the coming of age mm-hmm. genre. Yeah. All right. Let's get into some of the background around the film, some of the production notes and such. We already mentioned Stephen King. Stephen King, not just a horror writer. I think it's important to, yes, there's a dead body here. There's a lot of that, but it's not a killer clown you know what i mean so important to remember there there's a fake cujo you know 
Fojo. Yes, yes. Shows up. <laughs> a faux Cujo. And then we already mentioned Rob Reiner, too. He considers it his best film ever. And he also considers it the turning point of his career. From Mike, what you said, people thinking mm-hmm. of him as the All in the Family star, him living in the shadow of his father, who's one of the great comedic actors of all time, and him just doing mockumentaries, right? Like, he does this. His career takes off in, in terms of, like, more drama movies. And not, not like, hard dramas all the time, no, right? But, well, like, he'll do Harry Met Sally, yeah. but he'll also do Princess Bride, right? Like... Which that, come on, that's one of the most revered films of all time as well. So he becomes he becomes a great American director. Yeah, like how can you work between those, like that's just so incredible to be able to navigate between those two drastically different sides of storytelling to me. You know what I'm saying? Like one is literally a guy reading a storybook to his grandson and we're watching it happen. And the other is like, you know, considered one of the greatest romances of all time. Like just... He's very, very good at... Well, I think directing actors, for one, because he was one. and But not every actor has that skill. But also, human interaction, he's amazing at that, right? Like, his films, yeah. to me, are just known for how people interact. <laughs> I mean, that, that's all Spinal Tap is. You know, it's like maybe maybe the first in, entirely improv movie. I don't know that's for sure. If not, maybe the first improv comedy, right? Like, I'm sure experimental film goes back before I know but you watch that movie and it's all just about reaction. Like these people know, like the, the characters they're playing are people that they are, you know, it's so weird how they're able to inhabit. And he's, he's the documentarian in that, the interviewer. So he's keeping the whole thing going. Right. So it's his just crazy ability, I guess, to read, you know, the moment, I guess, and just keep it going, which is terrific. He's so underrated. Like, I, I don't know again, if younger people today, Talk about Rob Reiner as one of the great American directors, but he is. Like, he's one of the great American storytellers. His journey on this project is super interesting. Uh, the screenplay was written by the producers, Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon, that's their names, obviously adapted from the Stephen King short story, which, by the way, this short story collection has, like, a bunch of other shit that got adapted, which, which is oh, super yeah. cool. It's amazing, Brian. Like, every, as much Stephen King stuff that's been adapted to screen, I feel like there's just as much that hasn't. That and is it, true. It just blows my mind every time yeah so this this one it was called different seasons and it had four short stories the first one is rita hayworth and the shawshank redemption which shawshank redemption uh the second one is apt pupil which is technically a high school film maybe we'll cover that one day uh the body is this one stand by me and the fourth one is a, a story called the breathing method which supposedly has been purchased at various times but never adapted uh, but yeah i mean three of those four are you know, big Hollywood movies, so that that's interesting. And a couple other directors were attached, but eventually the studio decided on Rob Reiner, which was shocking to everyone. When the... Whatever studio it was a part of got bought over and there was a merger after Rob Reiner was signed on, they decided to pull the plug on the movie. They're like, what? Rob Reiner's going to direct this? It doesn't really make sense. Not worth it. Norman Lear, of all people, and maybe, you know, our younger listeners don't know that name, but our older listeners do, one of the godfathers of sitcoms, and he is the creator of All in the Family, Rob Reiner's show. He stepped in to finance the film after the plug got pulled, just because he loved the story, and he really, really believed in Rob Reiner. So Rob Reiner owes a lot to Norman Lear, but I think more than Mm -hmm. people think. 
Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't expect Norman Lear's name to pop up here, but it's sort of like when you start talking about the Elephant Man and Mel Brooks' name like starts flying around, right? <laughs> it's like, okay, like these guys just have, you know, more than interesting comedy. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it's so cool to think that Norman Lear is like involved in a Stephen King production. <laughs> and speaking of Stephen King, it was originally set in Maine. Almost all his work is set in New England. Uh, it was moved to Oregon. Beautiful Oregon settings here. Again, ironically, the Goonies also shot and based in Oregon as well. Huh. Just from tra- I traveled out the, to Oregon and Washington last year. Just beautiful, lush landscapes. I totally get it. Castle Rock, Maine gets switched to Castle Rock, Oregon. We know Rob Reiner's production company after this will be Castle Rock Entertainment. A great yeah. production company, which he named after this. That's how special this movie is to him. Yeah, and and I really don't care that they move the location. I just love the idea that it's in Castle Rock because at the time when I was a kid, I didn't know what the hell that meant. It meant nothing to me. Uh, but now, you know, 30 years later, having read a lot of Stephen King and like dove deep into the lore and all this, I know that there's freaky towns across the country that bad shit happens in, in a Stephen King book, right? And Castle Rock appears a lot throughout his works. And there was even a TV show for a while. I watched the first season. I thought it was really good, actually, called Castle Rock, where they sort of tried to do like this Stephen King shared universe where like all of his stories actually happened, right? And like these are sort of the descendants or whatever. I don't know. I, I never got through season two, but <laughs> needless needless to say, I, I think it's great. Like, I, you know, Stephen King stories are like one of the sort of forgotten first shared universes of literature or something, or at least in America, American, like this whole sort of new idea of like crossing over characters and shit. Like he was down with that from day one. Yeah. And again, th- that is something I never got till this watch. Right. I didn't realize that's where it took place. So super cool. Yeah, it just it just gave me extra in the back of my head. I was just like, oh, that's why these greasers are like demons. Like, you know, like that's why they'll pull a switchblade on like a nine year old or something like because they're like probably just being influenced by some malevolent force somewhere in the woods or something. The movie was a big hit when it came out. Uh, Eight million dollar budget, 52 million dollar uh, return. And this is. Before most movies were making a hundred million dollars, people out there who are, who are judging only fifty million dollars. Yeah, no, well, this is when a ticket was like two fifty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, made a star out of a lot of the people we're going to talk about. Made a star out of the director, and the rest is history. Even got nominated for an Academy Award uh, for best original screenplay, or sorry, best yeah. adap- best adapted screenplay. And and I don't know, I didn't research this, but I mean, I would assume this also went from people thinking Stephen King was just a horror guy to being like, oh, maybe he is capable of doing other stuff. Now, I don't think he was interested in doing much more of this kind of (laughs) stuff for a while. Like he'll get he definitely got back around to this kind of stuff later after the accident and everything. But like, I, I love that idea, too, where they're like, oh, Stephen King, like, look at that. Like, he's versatile. And then. And then you read the rest of his stuff, and it's like, nah, well, maybe not so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I love I love his stuff. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm just you know I'm just pulling his leg. No, but he's very uh, polarizing. Is the right word? He's obviously very successful, but there are a lot of people who are like WTF with Stephen King. A lot of it's great, and a lot of it's like cocaine fueled madness. 
Oh, oh, there's certainly that phase, like the alcoholic phase, the blow phase and all that. <laughs> but, but like the one thing it always came down back to for me, like the reason that like I read and suffer, not I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say it was a suffer, but like the reason I made it through something like The Stand is like I genuinely love the way he kind of just like blows up a character's backstory halfway through, you know, like you'll just be reading the book and then suddenly it's like, let's do a chapter on like when Mark was a child, <laughs> like you know, why he's acting this way now and all this, like I just the way he explores that kind of stuff is always interesting. He's a legend in not just, again, just his writing, but the fact that so much of it has been adapted is just yeah. insane. So at the core of this movie are these four young friends. One of them, Corey Feldman. That's what we're talking about on our Corey's lap, if, if you will. <laughs> we'll get to him in a second. But mm-hmm. uh, the first one, Gordy, he's kind of our lead here. Played by Will Wheaton. What is your, uh, what's your history with Will Wheaton? Is it from this movie? Like, cause I, I feel like I've seen him in something else, but I don't remember what it is. So, I mean, I saw him in this movie. And then later in life, when I, I didn't realize that it was the same Will Wheaton, but I know him as Wesley Crusher from Star Trek The Next Generation. I watched that show in high school oh um, yeah <laughs> yeah and he he was the son of the doctor and he was on the ship and he was like uh you know omega level genius of some kind and he, he was um you know even a, an ensign on the bridge and stuff and then at one point some alien took him to another dimension or something but <laughs> but he was on that show for a couple years and wow. and that's what i primarily recognize them from and i love that i thought that character i i came to find out that that character was like very much hated for whatever reason but i always identified with wesley i thought it was great to see him on the bridge with Worf and picard and everybody like i i thought that was great it actually got me to watch the show more so that that is my first uh sort of con and then i was like oh he was the kid in stand by me much like another actor in this movie, I'll come back and be like, that was the same kid in Stand By Me, but yeah. I had a couple of those moments. Um, and of <laughs> course, uh, the movie's framed by his adult version, known as The Writer. Uh-huh. Played by Richard- you. <laughs> <laughs> I, only, I feel like I only look like Richard Dreyfuss in Jaws. I don't think I look like this. Well, they, de- they definitely like balded him up in this because he did. He is not as old as he was in this movie, I don't think. But. I don't think so. But, uh, but yeah, so Richard Dreyfuss plays the writer and he is kind of going back and um reminiscing on this particular i don't want to call it incident but this little this adventure that happened around labor day in 1959 with his friends yeah he he finds out that one of them was killed so like it makes him reminisce about like the times that they were together and stuff so when i was a kid the first couple times i saw this i did not catch the beginning Mm. And I thought it was like like a mind blowing thing that like the narrator ended up being him. Even though like if you oh. watch it from front to back, you know it's him the entire time, obviously. Yeah, but you don't know he's writing the book or the yes. story. Like that's yeah. what that's the big reveal is like, oh, he actually grew up to become that writer. So when I was a kid though, it was just like, Oh, this is him when he's older. It was like a like that kind of moment. Mm-hmm. One of the moments that I like freaked out the most about if we don't get to it later is in the ending when he's typing on that computer. I was like, oh, my God, computers used to look like that. Like, he used to, oh, to type yeah. like that. I had that. I had that good. An Apple II that looked like that. <laughs> you, you know what this is all reminding me of that it never really ever occurred to me until right now is Wonder Years. 
Like yes. this is the Wonder Years of the movie. <laughs> oh, a hundred. All, you, all you're missing is the the neighbor girl, right? Well, I forget her name, but I forget everyone's name on that show. I wouldn't be shocked if the Wonder Years was partially inspired by this. I don't know if they'll admit it, but it definitely feels feels that way. Even from like the glasses of some of the characters, right? Like the friend has glasses, like Corey. Oh, yeah. yeah, Paul. That's oh, one yeah. I remember, yeah. The one that people thought was Marilyn Manson for a while. Oh, wait. Okay, so there was Paul, Kevin, and Winnie. Winnie Cooper. Okay, that was it. Okay. Yeah, Winnie Cooper, of course. So, so yeah, Richard Dreyfus as the writer. And, of course, Richard Dreyfus, we, we've talked about High School Slumber Party, American Graffiti. Obviously, he's in a ton of other stuff, but we're going to get a lot of people in this movie who are in other High School Slumber Party films. So that's why I bring it up. I think that might be when the, that whole nostalgia conversation started, where we were ah, talking about George Lucas, right? And you're right, he yeah. was sort of pining about oh man like 15 years ago this was me (laughs) i was a dragster on the strip getting burgers and malts (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's definitely from that episode so uh the next kid is chris river phoenix the late river phoenix Mm. he was the teen star after this movie yeah fortunately lost his life that night in the viper room i don't think he made a bad movie that i've ever seen you know like sneakers little nikita my own private Idaho with Keanu, like I don't know, just like such a such a tragedy. And again, younger people might recognize the last name from his brother Joaquin. I'm sorry because we're talking about like when they were kids, and like, have you seen? Did did, did you or have we talked Space Camp? I mean, we've done so much, but but I don't think amazing, so. So Joaquin is in it, but his name is Leaf. He goes by yeah. Leaf Phoenix. Yeah, but so you might want to get to that someday. That's a great teen movie. Space Camp. Okay, I'll write it to him. <laughs> Maybe do a summer oh, during the summer, you know, when we're we're putting a little list together for the summer. You and I, so. <laughs> but yeah, River Phoenix growing up, you know, I was only like five when he died, but I was aware of it. I knew it. It was something people were talking about. Gone too soon, twenty three. Yeah, he was like just did like maybe not just, but like I feel like well, yeah, he would just did that like Indiana Jones thing, right? And I feel like people were like maybe he will just become Indiana Jones someday, you know? Like there was such high kind of like hopes, I guess. But again, that was such a dark time to be a celebrity. Oh my god! Like just thinking back on it, how many people were just like actors were all like doped up all the time, you know? I mean, not that a certain amount of them aren't now and it's still sad and everything, but like you hear about this and, you know, happened at Johnny Depp's club. And there's a whole documentary about the Viper room. I think out now. Yeah. Just tragic. And he's so talented though. Even in this as a kid, he's so talented. Yeah. This is the role. This is like the, like he's not the lead, but this is like the role, you know, like this is the one where you're like, shit, who the hell is going to like, what kid is like wise enough beyond his years to do this, you know? Yeah, so good, so good. Now, Corey Feldman plays Teddy Duchamp. Mm-hmm. Whose dad stormed the beach at Normandy. So. Yes, his dad stormed the beach at Normandy. He's got an ear issue because his father... It's also again, a rageaholic and put his yeah. ear to the stove. I mean, Pretty sad. This, uh, this kid feels like the most Stephen King sort of like concoction to me you know definitely formed and everything and like he kind of looks like stephen king did with those big glasses and like the goofy shirts and stuff like that i feel like it's sort of him almost this is a pretty grounded story but all these characters have like like potential to turn into really stephen king-esque characters like a carrie or like a you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. 
there's like an undercurrent of potential for that here. Yeah, even Gordy. Even Gordy has like even that Gordy. streak, right? So uh, Feldman has said that this is the this character he related to so much. He was having problems at home that we've learned about later that it was like so similar. But for our two Corey's purposes, Corey Haim actually auditioned for the role of Gordy. <laughs> and he did not get it. Feldman got it. And, and we talked about this on last year's lap, how it seemed like Corey Feldman was getting all the roles at the beginning. And then there was a switch where mm-hmm. Corey Haim was being like the lead and Corey Feldman was the best friend. In fact, they offered Corey Haim a role, like a side character role in this. Hmm. And he turned, he turned it down and took Lucas the same oh, year. So, okay. I could have maybe seen him as Gordy, but not as Teddy. Teddy is too unhinged. I feel like Feldman's bringing a lot of his real life to this role now that we know a lot more about his history and, and you know, complications, whatever he's been through and stuff. Like, it feels like he's embodied this character with a lot of his own emotions and stuff. Uh, yeah, 100%. I think he's <laughs> perfect in it. This is definitely more of a Feldman character than a Haim character. The fourth, you mentioned him, Vern. Jerry O'Connell. In his first role ever, what are your thoughts on Jerry O'Connell? As as like he, he's well, I don't know I, I love this character. So first of all, I just have to say, Sliders. <laughs> Sliders was my jam. I love that. Show. I still love that show, but I loved that show when it came out, and I liked him a lot. He's a real kind of affable dude, you know. Like I could never really see him get angry or anything. And again, I was like, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that like this guy who's gonna marry rebecca romaine stamos and steal him her away from john stamos like this guy was in stand by me this is little Vern. <laughs> like you're kidding me and the funny thing is like around this age like i looked almost exactly like Vern. like i was a little like <laughs> i was kind of like one of the overweight kids in the neighborhood i guess and uh always sporting either a bowl cut or a crew cut so uh, i was probably running around in the summertime with a crew cut and yeah, Vern's, Vern's hilarious, you know? I, I mean, the dynamic between all four of them are great. They're all so different, but they fit together so perfectly. It's like some of them are more like each other than the others, but like in different ways. So like, you know, Chris and Gordy are similar, but also Chris and Teddy are similar, but even Vern and Chris are similar. So like everybody sort of shares these similarities in the way that you're like, oh, I totally understand how they gravitated together and, and became this little crew. For sure. And Jerry O'Connell, I was with you, Mike. I didn't even know he was this kid until much later when he was marrying Rebecca Romaine. I remember there was a roast of John Stamos. Okay. Someone came up and being like, really? You lost your wife to the fat kid from Stand By Me? And I was like, what? That was him? Um, (laughs) Great comedy career after this. And just in general, like a real fun career. Joe's Apartment, the first MTV movie ever. Uh, Oh, my God. (laughs) Joe's apartment. That's right. Forgettable one for sure. But he, he was in a scream, scream two, I think. Yeah, scream or two, maybe. kangaroo jack, bunch of stuff. <laughs> kangaroo jack, the poor bastard. <laughs> so those those are our main four. Rob Reiner was really focused on just making them have a rapport, having them have a good time, and and just feeling like they're friends. A couple weeks before shooting, he got them together to do like an improv game. Oh, okay. Just so kind of, so they could build a rapport with each other and it worked. They were friends. They hung out on set. There's a lot of stories from the set, like the hotel they were staying at. 
the mischief that they would get in. Specifically, like, uh, let's see what what, uh, IMDb trivia said. Threw a lot of uh, furniture into the pool. Will Wheaton hacked into the uh, arcades uh, games in the lobby so that they could play for free. What? I think that's cool. Uh, They covered Keith Sutherland's car with mud. Oh, my God. Regular. They're regular George Clooney's. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, Kiefer, <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland, who we'll get into in a little bit, mm-hmm. he unfortunately said there was a story that they were filming at a place that was next to a Renaissance fair, and they bought these cookies just thinking they were regular cookies, and gave them to the kids, and they ended up being like pot cookies. So, yeah. like the kids were got you know really high on set. I'm not advocating this; they're children, you know what I mean. But like that, that happened, you know what I mean. A lot of hijinks and camaraderie. Quite quite literally hijinks. (laughs) I want to take a small segue here before we get into the other actors. Because when we we talked to Goonies, we were joined by our hot dog mate, our hot dog Mm -hmm. buddy, Jordan Pullen-Clark. She did not like the Goonies, and she expressed a lot of sentiments that I think she would express today as well. There are almost no women in the cast... They're talked about at times. The mom, I think, is the only one with lines. This is very much a boy's story. It could be seen as universal in a sense, but watching it today, I kind of feel for maybe young women watching it at the time. There was such a delineation in the 80s between, like, girl stories and boys' stories. So, I don't know. I can't not watch it in 2021 or 2022 lenses and not at least acknowledge that, like, there are no women here. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the other one is maybe a waitress that comes out back after oh, they yeah, shoot yeah, the yeah. gun. But yeah, you're totally right. And like, you know, I'm just not saying like this is making it better or anything. But, you know, as opposed to The Goonies, which was shot and took place in like, you know, what was that? 85, 86 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it was showing and depicting the year it was made, right? This is showing and depicting you know, 20 years, 25 years prior. Okay. So like, I think there could be something said uh, as to like, it's exposing that problem, right? That's like, look, why weren't the women running around with the, with, or the boys and the girls playing together around this time, right? Like maybe that is a something to watch this film for and be like, oh, it's pointing out like that could be a problematic thing. And also how like aggressive and violent the boys are in this movie, you know, and like sure. the teenagers, especially like that's an issue. Like that's a problem because there's no women around, you know, that's what I think. Like there's nothing to their, like, I don't know. There's no balance. There's nothing, you know what I'm saying? There, I don't know. There's no intellectual sort of exchange with anybody aside from your own gender. I think like that things can get very complicated, but the one thing I think this movie is able to get away with that a lot of movies couldn't at the time uh, is show vulnerable men or vulnerable males, I'll say. And like, unfortunately, they had to be boys, like little boys, right? Because like, you can't, you didn't want to show grown men cry. I think that that's something about this movie that's very powerful is like, you're seeing these friends, these these boys like open up and cry in front of each other and, and try and like explore and talk about their problems with each other and things. And like, that is definitely something that was not going on in the Goonies, you know, (laughs) that was not happening in the Goonies at all and stuff. So like, yes, it's, I, I, I agree. Like, and I would agree with Jordan as well, but um, I, I don't know. I just, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying what I just said makes, makes it better 
or fixes anything, but I just had to like, those were things on my mind, you know, while I was watching this movie going like, yeah, I, cause I did notice that. I was like, where's his, he doesn't have a sister or anything, you know, like nothing. And I don't want to put words in Jordan's mouth. Obviously she's not here to speak for herself, but also I don't want to say that that makes it thus a bad movie. I just think it is one perspective and I could see someone watching this, especially a woman, and being like, okay, I get that it's a well-made film, but I don't see myself anywhere here. I'm not that interested in this story. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I could see that too. But what I'll say to that, I guess, is like, I, I watch Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just sort of interested in trying to come at it from all, see what everybody's thinking. You know what I'm saying? So like, maybe this could benefit from a watch if you're not in it like in the same way like i could benefit from watching movies that men aren't in in a lot of ways but you know i'm never gonna say you have to watch a certain movie or else like no <laughs> uh, totally not i could i could definitely see someone like just you know completely swiping left on this right away maybe that should be your new podcast you have to watch this movie or else <laughs> and like i got like a guillotine hanging from the yeah. ceiling and like <laughs> there's like a candle with a rope and it's slowly burning (laughs) oh man so the supporting actors here i was shocked by i remembered again that keith sutherland was in the film talked about him on lost boys another Corey movie with two Corys. (laughs) but but he's great as ace the gang leader they're like teenagers right oh yeah yeah they're definitely teenagers yeah they're they're juvenile delinquents yeah, so I was actually pleasantly surprised that we got to see a lot more teens in the film that I remembered, you know? Yeah. So he's that leader of that crew. But how about, like, one of his right-hand men, uh, Billy? D- did you recognize who played Billy, Mike? Uh, so <laughs> it looked super familiar, and I definitely had to look him up after because it was just killing me. He also looks a lot like my friend Aldo, but, like... Yeah, it's three o'clock high, you know, and, yeah, and like Casey, Casey Shamasco. How crazy where it's like in three o'clock high, you, he looks like some guy like a pushover in this. I feel like he could <laughs> kick my ass. Sometimes. <laughs> like when he's getting that Cobra tattoo, he gets the Cobra tattoo, right? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that is hardcore. Yeah, I was so happy to see him here. I was like, oh, wow, because I hadn't seen this since I saw three o'clock high. Very cool. Very cool that he's in this as well. And then I don't I do not know why I didn't remember this. I do not know why like I don't know if I ever knew this even though I'd seen the movie. But John Cusack is the brother Denny. I was like, yes. "What?" When he came on screen, I'm like I had no idea at least in my current memory, it might have been deleted that John Cusack was in this film. It was blocked like you've been blocked from his Twitter. Maybe maybe that's um, why. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's wild because every time I watch this movie, it's not that I forget, but when he shows up, I'm surprised. Like, I'm just always so surprised because I remember just as a kid, like feeling like John Cusack was a superstar. Like, I don't know why, maybe because his movies were on all the time, you know, on HBO and stuff. But like to see him do what is essentially a cameo in this movie uh, right is 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 crazy. it's craziness <laughs> yeah i think it's more of a bit part really because he wasn't yeah. as famous when this came out no but true true but that's how it felt to me yes watching it. you know what i'm saying Same. like as yeah. a kid yeah that's how it felt it felt like oh we we have this really pivotal very 
small screen time role, we need like a someone huge right now. Like who's like it could either be him or Johnny Depp, right? Like, and I feel like Johnny <laughs> Depp would be better off playing Ace or something. Yeah. So uh, anyone else in the cast who really uh, stuck out at you? Um, I feel like there was one more guy. I can't find his name here on the IMDb because everyone looks so different. But wasn't the one blonde kid also in summer school and some other movies that have been reviewed and stuff? Is that the same blonde kid? Oh, let me see. I know who you're talking about now. Um, I didn't think about that, but, but let's see. Stand by me. Cast... And I always heard this as a rumor. I I don't think this is true, and I can't find anything to corroborate it. But I always heard Jamie Lee Curtis played that waitress who comes out when the gun goes off. I don't I don't know, but like I always thought, I always somewhere along the line in my life, I heard that was trivia. Um, really, and I, really. And I've never, you know, looked it up or anything. I've just sort of like kept it in the back of my mind. By the way, you you are correct, Mike. Gary Riley is that actor. He plays Charlie Hogan in the movie. And he is Dave of Chainsaw and Dave in summer school. Yeah. So that's really cool. <laughs> We've seen that uh, both Chainsaw and Dave pop up in things from time to time. So <laughs> good call there. So the way this movie opens up, what a line. Like what an all-time line. I was 12 going on 13 the first time I saw a dead human being. It's like, what? So after the movie ended... I thought about that line just jumped into my mind, okay? And it dawned on me, the first dead human body he saw wasn't the Chambers boy, it was his brother. Yeah, yeah, so this is the first watch that that really, like, made sense to me, right? Like, the whole time, everyone yeah, would just and, think it's the, that kid, but no, it's the brother, you're right. And that whole, that whole subtext was completely lost on me as a child. <laughs> Because I didn't understand grief. I didn't get it. And he wasn't acting. And now I see he's definitely acting like he, you know, his brother died. But like, doesn't know what to do about it. But, like, I didn't get that. But now, like, it just fucking crushed me. <laughs> it destroyed me, you know? Like, it is such a powerful part of this movie that that is, they're, they're going to see this dead body. And he is confronting the death of his brother. Like, that is awesome. I mean, it's not awesome. You know, in a, in a literary no. sense, yes. it, it's very well tied together, Stephen King. <laughs> this is a movie about grief. It, it's a movie about death and grief, especially for uh, his character. And watching it as an adult, you see that. And anyone who's ever lost someone out there, you know what those like first couple you know months are like. Dude, 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 forget those months. Like It could be a year or two or three. Yeah years or just even your whole life processing that and especially to have to do that as a kid so like seen in that lens you're like oh this movie is heavier than i thought <laughs> you know it's not just like a a fun like oh let's find this thing in the woods movie it has a lot of a uh, punch behind its characters it, it does such a great job of making you forget and then reminding you at just the right moments. And and it's so funny too, because like, yeah, it's like, Hey, like, let's forget about that and go look and we're going to the woods. What are we looking for? A dead body. Uh, for, yeah. But let's not even think about that. Like let's, it's just, we're going to find something guys. <laughs> That's it's so wild. It's so wild. So early in the movie, what are some of the, I guess, iconic moments that we should talk about here? So this is something from this movie that I wish was not in this movie because it just plagued me as a kid. 
from especially my brother. But the fucking two for flinching. Oh. Two for, two for flinching. I'm just starting <laughs> there. Like, I'm not even starting at scenes. And I'm just saying, like, that in general. Like, I, I, maybe that was gone from society. And then this movie, why did this movie have to bring that back? I don't know. <laughs> so, but I feel like it's gone again. And, and that's a good thing. <laughs> There's a lot of those little things in this that I remembered. Even just like, uh, what was another one? Like the songs they're singing, just yeah. the idea of just like walking along the railroad tracks, like that's something that no kid where I grew up was allowed to really do. But here, just right. yeah, just walk along the way railroad tracks, you know. Kids with guns, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, he stole his dad's gun, right? Yeah, I remember that feeling very dangerous at the time and scary. I love the treehouse. Yeah, like that they classic. have this clubhouse, like because it's very little rascals, you know. It just it grounds them in that scene in particular. Grounds them in their age. I feel they're sitting around reading comics in a treehouse, playing cards and smoking cigarettes and talking about lost pennies and all these kinds of things. Like I love that. And then it's like, no, they're gonna actually like go out on a quest, like four hobbits or something, you know, and like <laughs> defy defy the odds and all that kind of thing. I love you mentioned the pennies. I love, uh, you know, when they all decide to look for the dead body and they make the excuses with their parents, they forgot, they forget to pack food. Um, and then they just put all their money together. I love that scene. Just like whatever they have. And they have $2 and 37 cents, which today is like $22. I looked it up $23. Oh, So it's a lot more, but still not a lot. You know, I, I think that's so cool. Just J- Jerry O'Connell, Vern, his obsession with looking for the pennies under the under the porch. I always remember that as well. These they're little things that were coming back to me as I went along. Even uh look, these are teen boys talking, so I'm quoting them, but uh talking about the Mickey Mouse Club and uh, Annette, Annette. Annette Funicello's quote unquote tits are getting bigger. Like it's just that that's how kids talk, okay? But you just watched like five Annette films last summer, right? Oh, <laughs> that's why I had to bring it up, you know? <laughs> we always love a good Annette Finicello uh, shout out. There's the great debate came from this movie, which is, you know, what is Goofy? Is he a dog or what? Like, he can't be a dog. He drives a car. He wears a hat. And then the second great debate, who who would be who? Mickey Mouse or Superman, right? Was that it? Mighty Mouse or Superman. Mighty Mouse, excuse me. Oh my gosh, me handing my comic book card. <laughs> but like, Mighty Mouse or Superman. Yeah, like, I mean, that that debate rages on to this day. Fun stuff like that. It, it's so cool to get to have that dialogue because that's the dialogue I still have with my friends. If we're like in the car going to a sports game or something, you know what I mean? Just like, the scenarios. I love giving scenarios. Part of the reason why I probably like podcasting, right? It, it's so fun and it feels so real. And we get to learn about these characters through dialogue, which, like you said, Mike, some screenwriting teachers, uh, just people in film, discourage, right? They say, like, oh, no narrator. Or, oh, you know, let's see it more than hearing it. But I think you can be effective in this way, too. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think this movie does both really well you know i think i sort of maybe alluded that i thought it might have been a little unbalanced or something in that way but if i may there's there's two moments i'd like to discuss that involve our man Corey, if you will that i think you know one that shows and one that tells just amazing detail about his character the first is the train dodge 
yes. and everything that comes with that. Train. Okay? And he, he's just standing there waiting for the train to hit him. And like that, you know, he's a, he's suicidal, this kid. Absolutely. He's, right? He's suicidal. And like the movie is telling us that. And like, hopefully you pick it up because they're never going to speak it out loud. But it's showing that instead of telling that. Okay. And like, that brought me to tears this time. Like it real, and you know, I mean, Chris does say, "What are you doing? Trying to kill yourself? You want to kill yourself?" But Teddy never says, "I'm, I'm going to do it." You know, so it's a way of sort of expressing that, that part of the character through showing instead of telling. I felt for him because you know what I'm saying. I feel like usually when they say show don't tell, they don't want the actual character to say, "Well, you know, like 20 <laughs> years ago, I went and I was on this adventure and I got this scar and this is what it be." You know, like that's yeah. like, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, but you're right, totally. And the way that the whole train thing will play out later with the other boys, you know, it has a great way of extending this undercurrent of darkness with that character and just the overall thing that I was appealed to me as a kid, which is kind of the action, right? Like this fear that a train can come at any time and you just gotta, if it's on these bridges that they cross occasionally, you're taking a chance, right? The duality of this movie is the thing that appealed to me most on this watch. The fact that, Mike, what you're saying, just these characters are living and breathing people, but there's also hijinks ensuing on top of that. The actual train dodge sequence is gorgeous. Like the way they use wide shots and close-ups and and effects and, and mats and everything. It's just, it's, you know, it just goes to show like... We didn't need, not we, but like they didn't need computers. <laughs> like they got the job done and it probably looks better than it would have nowadays. But, but you're right. Like just the way, like the quote unquote roller coaster of that scene, like the emotional roller coaster of like the tenseness of when they're crossing and then the train's coming and they're running and then the relief when they miss it and everything. Like it's just so well put together. And then Teddy's response of like, you guys did it. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So proud of them and like wishes he could be them and stuff. So like it's a nice sort of then like he never dodges it on the way back, you know? So that's a bit of growth. Like that scene's not in the movie or anything or, you know? So that was really that was really nice. And what was the other scene that So the other scene that that starts to I mean, we do get a little narration early on about his like troubled house life uh, home life and everything but we get a lot more at the junkyard when the junk dealer recognizes them and he really lays into teddy and talks about his dad and how like teddy's like my dad stormed the beach at normandy he's like your dad's a lunatic and he's in the nut house and like he won't let it go he just keeps ragging on him and like that that sort of does both but i feel like that's a great telling moment you know you have another character telling a character something that like he doesn't even want to hear about himself like maybe even rejects and like you know what i'm saying like i'm sure that's in the back of his head all the time but like he doesn't want to hear that you know <laughs> like it really triggers him in like the utmost way and i just i don't know the way they all deal with the aftermath of that is again one of those very vulnerable moments where you know, he's crying and they put their arm around him and he kind of like, no, I don't need that. But then he's like, you know, I don't want to fuck up our trip and all this kind of shit. So like, there's just so much going on. Like, you know, they have all these sort of moments of growth throughout this one day and a half. But yeah. I, but I feel like Teddy, Teddy really goes through like more than, and maybe, maybe it's because of uh Corey, but like, I feel like he goes through more than is, 
on the page even right like that's what i mean like i feel like he's bringing so much experience to this role that like he really brings this life to the forefront or it almost feels like four leads you know in that kind of way yeah there's one storytelling lead but they're all all four of them have the this undercurrent of different kind of issues and i and i love it and i think it's very clear the river's phoenix role chris is definitely more like obvious sounds bad but like that's the role people want you know that's he's like he comes from a broken home he gets that emotional crying scene later as well but the teddy role is like stealthily stealthily the most interesting of the kids yeah is it what you would maybe call like more nuanced because like even chris chambers is just wearing like a white shirt and blue jeans the whole movie and like he's just a very sort of blank slate in a lot of ways where it's just like i don't know i just see like leader written on him and that's all i need he's like the leonardo of their little crew right like if you broke him up into ninja Vern is definitely michelangelo <laughs> let's see Raphael is uh certainly cory <laughs> donatello would be gordy which kind of that all tracks yeah but what's great about cory's role is like you know when we first meet him, he's wearing like the Hawaiian shirt and the Buddy Holly glasses and he's smoking a cigarette. And like when we next see him, he's in his army fatigues because he's on a mission, you know? So like, it just feels like his wardrobe maybe kind of tells more of a story and Chris Chambers, I need to project a bit more onto. And it's kind of like the character says, like people are, you know, people just have this assumption about me because of my name and, and, who I'm associated with and stuff like that. And I was like, Oh movie, I kind of did the same thing in a little bit of a way. Whereas like, I wasn't quite sure what to make of Chris until the end. And I was just like projecting all these ideas I had maybe about him myself. You know what I mean? Like at the screen. For sure. For sure. There are moments too, that I was so happy this time around to watch them again. Cause I remember them so well. And just everything around that campfire, we already brought up the the good old campfire goofy debate, right? But Vern talking about if he could eat any food, it would be cherry-flavored Pez, right? Love that, too. Hey, Bruno, where's the radio? Let's see if we can get some sounds. Here. We talked into the night. The kind of talk that seemed important until you discover girls. All right, all right. Mickey's a mouse, Donald's a duck, Pluto's a dog. What's Goofy? If I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pass. Cherry flavor pass. No question about it. Goofy's a dog. He's definitely a dog. I knew the $64,000 question was fixed. There's no way anybody could know that much about opera. He can't be a dog. He wears a hat and drives a car. Wagon Train's a really cool show, but did you ever notice that they never get anywhere? Just keep wagon training. God, that's weird. What the hell is Goofy? Not one of us mentioned Ray Brower, but we were all thinking about him. Um, nothing like a smoke after a meal. <laughs> that line I always remember. But the thing that I remembered most as a kid was the, again, using quotes, lard-ass storytelling um, of the yeah. pie-eating contest and the vomit. It's done! Lard-ass! 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 
Diving into his fifth pie, Lord S began to imagine that he wasn't eating pies. He pretended he was eating cow flops and rat guts and blueberry sauce. Lord S! Lord S! Lord S! Lord S! Slowly, a sound started to build in Lord S's stomach. A strange and scary sound, like a log truck coming at you at 100 miles an hour. opened his mouth, and before Bill Travis knew it, he was covered with five pies worth of used blueberries. The women in the audience screamed. Bossman Bob Cormier took one look at Bill Travis and barked on Principal Wiggins. Principal Wiggins barked on the lumberjack that was sitting next to him. Mayor Grundy barked on his wife's tits. But when the smell hit the crowd, that's when Lardass's plan really started to work. Girlfriends barfed on boyfriends. Kids barfed on their parents. A fat lady barfed in her purse. The Donnelly twins barfed on each other. And the women's auxiliary barfed all over the benevolent order of antelopes. When someone said stand by me when I was young, this is the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> I could see that. I could see that. Uh, I mean, like, it's such a bizarre sequence. You know, it's almost like in Shakespeare where it's like the play within a play kind of thing where they're sitting around the campfire and he tells a story and we actually physically see the, the story as he's telling it. And it's weirder because if you think about it, Brian, you got his older self telling the flashback of his younger self telling a story. So we have like this layers. little like three layers of a matrix happening. <laughs> and again, it's it's. It's a story. It's a campfire story, and it's also yeah. told in that old tradition, that old telephone game, right? Like, this is what the kid heard. And obvi- obviously, that probably didn't happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? But there's probably a little grain of truth in that story. I liked it, too, because we finally get, like, a full-on story from Gordy, and there's these little hints and clues that he's a storyteller and a writer, and, you know, his brother says he loved the story he wrote, and his dad is all, like sports this and sports that and you know even as that nightmare it's like the wrong kid died <laughs> it's like all i kept thinking from ricky bobby or what's that? <laughs> not ricky bobby oh. maybe ricky bobby i don't know ronnie cox ronnie uh, cox dewey cox dewey cox dewey anyway cox. you have me dewey yeah so it's so great to be like no wait he actually is like a very creative kind of storyteller for a kid now the only thing about the lard ass story that bothered me this time you know, aside from like it's bigotry against, you know, overweight people and all that kind of thing. It, it is it is fat phobic, but it's also someone, you know, getting back at people for being fat. Exactly. Yes, there's that. There's that's what I that's why I think it's successful, right? Like ultimately, once you get to the conclusion. But I don't know if you noticed it this time. So like even people who weren't eating blueberry pie were vomiting blueberry pies. <laughs> Yeah. It blew my mind. It blew my mind this time. I could I was like, I never even noticed that. The vomit was made from blueberry blueberries and cottage cheese. Yeah, everyone's vomiting. It doesn't really make sense, but that's again part of the kids' storytelling, and that's that's why I love it. It's like not Yeah, so no, I, I thought it was fancy. fun. It's fun, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No. It, yeah, and also that that sequence is almost dreamlike in a way where it's it has like this kind of Tim Burton-esque surrealness to it if you ask me. 
Great uh, call. Just in the yeah. way, yeah, people are acting so like plastic and it's just so sort of like peachy keen and just, again, Stephen King did a lot of that too. He, he had like a bit of lynch in him where, you know, he would peel back the, the seedy underbelly of the suburbs or, you know, the happy homemaker wasn't so happy after all. So she took an ax to her husband. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, that, yeah. Iconic scene there. The other iconic scene from their adventure that I remembered as a kid is the leeches. Mm-hmm. Of course. Vern, there's something on your neck. Yeah, right. I'm not falling for that one, chance. No, Vern, there is something on your neck. It's a leech. Leeches! Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Freaked me out for my whole life. A lot of kids I grew up with were totally okay with like jumping in a pond and swimming. My family was from the city. We didn't do things like that. And like watching this too, I'm like, <laughs> I'm not getting a leech, you know where. <laughs> yeah, I'll go in a chlorinated pool, sure. But like if anything else is in there living or alive, like I'm not really down for it either. And like, yeah, I mean, I think just as a guy as a male i'll just as a as a as anyone who identifies as a anyone who's got a penis okay (laughs) (laughs) however you identify yourself like that is a that you don't want anything happening to that like you know that leech at the time was bigger than my entire johnson so like (laughs) you don't think that scared the shit out of me Ooh, and the way it's acted so well too like oh you know holy shit leech it's not played like it Yes, it's played like comedy, but it's also played like scary too. Like, oh my god! And the blood that you see when he takes that leech out, you're like, oh. yeah. <laughs> well, it's wild how the whole movie kind of feels like it's right on a razor's edge at times, you know. And I think maybe that's what the train tracks are supposed to remind us of: is that like at any moment this train can come and hit him, like it did the Chambers kid. It's like this unspoken, creeping, you know, like threat that's always looming that you kind of just put out of your mind and like, that's the danger of it is like, you kind of forget that it's so dangerous out here. And then a scene like the leeches comes along when they leave the train tracks and they're, you know, and it's like even more dangerous. It's like, Christ. Yeah. Oh my God. And then, you know, of course the looming threat of these older kids, it's a race to the body that they don't even realize. So Kiefer Sutherland and one of his boys found the body while stealing a car I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. They jacked the car and found, and then they saw, I think maybe when they were ditching it, they found the body. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, so they, they, they discover the body first, and then the kids, uh, one of the kids over here is at Vern. They, uh, the younger kids decide to go find that body to be famous, like in the newspaper, and hijinks ensue, I suppose. That's the movie. But the older kids decide, you know what? fuck it, we have a good alibi. We want to find the body first. And again, it's a race for like fame in this small town, essentially, finding this dead body. Which again, as a kid, 
I didn't really care about so much. Like I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of the dead body as a dead child like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, this was yeah. like, oh my god, there's so much death in this town because the dude's older brother died in a car accident. This kid died as well. Like, there's like a lot of dead kids in this town. It's. I mean, it's not quite Derry with Pennywise, but I mean, it's not. Yeah, it's up there. I'm sure there's more. We don't even. I'm, I'm sure there's at least one more mention of like someone that had died that we're not even remembering that is in this movie. But yeah. What I want to know about these teenagers is like, why aren't they drafted? Like, why haven't they been to Vietnam? Like, what is up with these guys? Well, we're um, be- we're between drafts. It's fifty nine, so Korea, ooh, okay. Korea draft has ended, and we haven't had Vietnam War draft yet. So, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, they are not drafted. Because because like these are the guys like from the movie Platoon, you know, yes, like, yes. These the, like those types of guys that ended up going over there who are already pretty much like unhinged to begin with because like these dudes are i mean there's nothing to fucking do no compared to today i grew up with nothing to do but compared to when i grew up these guys really had fucking nothing to do like compared to today forget it it's like they're living on mars okay so like mailbox baseball carving tattoos into each other's arms pushing around younger kids in the neighborhood like what else you know let's get our name in the paper fame and fortune you know like there's such there's such small thinkers to begin with <laughs> i don't i just love the way these evil greasers are portrayed here yeah and and that's what they're they're greasers but unlike american graffiti where they live in like a suburb where you could race cars and, and go to the you know a hamburger stand and stuff like that this is a more rural community so Right. You know what I mean? A lot less interaction with people. Yeah, like they come out of like a pool hall at one point. But like, I think what's more obvious is how desolate this town is. Like, there's Isolated. just nobody Absolutely. on the streets, you know? And Absolutely. I think that that is like very telling. I think we're seeing everybody who lives in this neighborhood in this movie. You know, <laughs> by the way, Twilight shout out. They're drinking Rainier beer, which is Charlie's favorite beer in the Twilight series and a beer of the Pacific Northwest. So that's cool. This final confrontation, it was so much more intense than I remembered it. Like, I don't know why. Like when I was a kid, seeing the kid with a gun, not that it wasn't that big of a deal, but it was just different right now. I guess as an adult, seeing a child like that point the gun at Keith or Sutherland. And he has the knife is like, whoa, you know, when they both discover the body and it's like, who's going to take or who's yeah. going to take credit for it? Sort of what an like an intense ending there. There's a lot to unpack here. And like Gordy has just sort of let it all out. And for, after seeing the dead body, he is like finally like crying about his brother, you know, and like letting all that stuff out. And then as as soon as that happens, these guys show up, you know, to whatever steal their glory you know take 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 what's theirs and, and everything and yeah i mean he's just he's crossed the precipice he's he's dealt with something large and come out the other side and like he's immediately showing that he has changed and grown up and like facing fears right like these guys like i said earlier like they're kind of demons they stole his brother's hat like you stole his dead brother's hat like you know his brother died for months ago he was the high school football hero like you're fucking with his with this kid after that happened um like i'm not saying he deserved to get shot or anything but he definitely needed to get taken down a peg and for gordy to do it is like you know standing up for himself facing his fears facing the future like 
he was just crying about how he felt worthless. It should have been him who died. Like, what is he here to do? Why is he, you know, why is he here? And now he's sort of kind of owning into that, right? Like he is protecting his friend. Chris is about to get stabbed. He is going to save his friend. I mean, it's a little ironic that Chris will eventually get stabbed like 30 years later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like at, if maybe if Gordy was there, he wouldn't. Who knows? But this moment is so powerful. And I especially like Kiefer says, we're going to get you. We're not going to forget about this. But like this is the last thing that character ever wants to think about again in his life. And he walks away last and you can feel he's like Biff now. Right. Like he has just had every all the cool sucked out of him. And now he's just going to doubt himself for the rest of his life or whatever, you know, like, I just feel like that character has been defeated. Like he's not going to seek revenge. So just a lot, a lot more than I'm saying going on too, but like, just, yeah, hit me so different this time. Like actually felt the weight. Whereas as a kid, I just felt the danger and I was just a little more concerned about all that. Now I see way more into it. I feel. And uh, yeah, it's just a heavy scene, man. Just, Heavy, heavy. And again, the grief that, uh, you know, Gordy's processing. Yes. It kind of just like comes to a head here and just like it gets so emotional. And, and you're right. Like he puts his Keith Southern character in his place. And the death of his brother is the real reason why he's at the girl up fast. But it's all manifesting kind of in this scene. It's like so much more intense as an adult to watch. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And they and they make they make a really adult decision just to make an anonymous phone call instead of like becoming famous off this dead kid who's just another kid like them. And what I found interesting on this watch is that the film doesn't exploit that dead body, right? Like there's no like close-up shot of like maggots eating this kid. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just pretty respectful they put a blanket over the body and that's that and we get this little well we get like two codas really where it just talks about that they all sort of drifted apart in various ways yeah we almost get like an american graffiti ending but spoken so like we learned that Vern still stuck around town and had like a family we learned that teddy wound up in prison and does like odd jobs around the town then we you know about chris being stabbed after after though becoming an attorney so like he ended up kind of getting out for a while and becoming something. Uh, and that was a big fear of his, right? He was like, no one's even going to give me a chance. And like, everybody's always already has this view of me and like, no one even wants to get to know me and because of where I come from. And like, it's just nice to know that that character did get out for a while. Yeah. I never thought Chris was a bad dude, but I think that the movie was kind of trying to attempt to be like, see, he didn't get stabbed because he was robbing something. He was, you know, trying to stop a fight like right right I, again i don't know if it was necessarily successful in that like wool over your eyes moment but it didn't matter right it's like it was happy to see that he made it out of town and then overall sad to see that he passed away being a good guy but richard dreyfus as an adult he's a writer and he lives in a mansion like <laughs> <laughs> he's got like beautiful children or at least a child and he's have good summer fun and he finishes his novel and <laughs> la di da. It seems like they're going to the beach. So, like, he lives in a mansion near the beach. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so, like, it's 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 a weird ending in that sense. Like, oh, everything's ha- hunky-dory and happy. But, hey, good for him. Yeah. I, I mean, the movie is one name away. Like, 
it, you know, you can't call the main character Stephen King, right? Like, <laughs> but, but it's literally Stephen King. Like, I mean, this, I'm sure this didn't happen verbatim, but I mean, this is his childhood, you know, like he talks about this stuff in almost everything. Like there are so many evil greasers in Stephen King books. Yeah. Even, even, even Christine, a car becomes one essentially. <laughs> yeah. And turns a kid into one. And then there's also so many sort of groups of friends like in it childhood friends, but then also a lot of his stuff is about remember when we were kids and like all this kind of thing. So yeah, I feel, I feel like it's I feel like it's just, you know, Stephen King writing about himself and saying, you know, I got out, I grew up and became a successful writer. I have a family and, you know, 100 percent, 100 percent. So this is a Corey series. We already talked about how we think uh, Corey Feldman did a great job in this movie. So let's let's get to our regular awards then. Yeah. Who was this movie made for? Hmm. Who is this movie made for? I mean, it's made for like teenage boys, right? Hundred percent for the most part, teenage boys and their and their fathers. <laughs> yeah, and and adults, but yeah, teenage boys for sure. Easy one there. Most likely to succeed. A little hard because they tell us what happens in the end. But who? Which character won the movie? <laughs> um, man, this is a hard one because like River Phoenix is so fucking good in this. But I mean, I really do think that Corey stole the might have stolen this this round yeah um, I, I can't say the character wins the movie though because we find out that like he oh know, right i forget it's character i forget it's character he gets in trouble with the law and stuff i'm like that was a little sad yeah he's still alive uh, I, I don't know how people. true i don't know how you can't say gordy though like the fact that no he i mean but that's obvious like yeah there's no way around it because of his mansion and his beautiful family you know what I mean? oh you know what's really weird brian is that richard dreyfus played the writer in american graffiti also oh yeah so, like is this just the three stages of that dude like is it the same character what is happening in, introspective introspective dude that's why <laughs> and like chris chambers could totally be the dragster in the you know, the guy <laughs> grew up to be the guy in the yellow drag strip. Wooderson Award. Is there a character here you would have liked to have seen more of? I think the, they balance the boys pretty well, but uh, maybe is there someone who you wish had a couple more lines or something? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to see the night of the big game. I wanted to see John Cusack footballed up Ooh, and all excited. Call. And, the, you know, good that call. last moment. I love Because it. I really, we get two flashbacks with him, very short. Then we get a dream sequence of the funeral, but that's the dream sequence, you know? Uh, so, and we don't see him. So like, I would have loved one more, one more, one more little sequence with him. Yeah. And like to see the rest of the town, know, like to know what a big deal he was. Cause I got a feeling it was like Friday night lights with his brother, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. It sounded like it because everyone, everywhere he went, like the guy at the store, like everywhere he went, talked about, his brother and just again to live in that shadow mm -hmm. i would have loved, and he seemed like a super nice guy so i would love to see another scene with him good call i would i didn't know who to pick for that one long duck dong award is there a character whose omission would make the film better did anyone seem frivolous or is there anyone that's insensitive off the bat i can tell you the language can be insensitive to people but i'm sure kids were using that language back then so yeah and there and the characters are children too so you could kind of say they don't really know any better yet that that kind of thing I mean, there's no one I would exclude, but like we mentioned earlier, like it would have been great if like, you know, we saw maybe more of one of the moms or maybe even that 
there was another true, mom. I mean, true. we hear about Vern's mom, I think, a little more. But, like, I would have loved to have seen Vern's mom at one scene or something. I don't know. But I understand that they're keeping it from the kid's perspective, right? Like, it's through their lens. It's almost got, like, a Peanuts, Charlie Brown sort of thing where, like, the parents don't and the adults don't really talk. And when they do, they don't really say all that much. It's a lot of, like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, but isn't it also weird that talk in terms of like the lack of women in this film that like the greasers didn't even have girlfriends and stuff? That is strange. Now that you say that, that is a little weird, right? Yeah, yeah. That there weren't any like pink ladies hanging around with the T birds. I get middle schoolers, but by the time you're a teenager, it's all about girls, you know? Like, dude, even, yeah, especially like Ace. Ace yeah. definitely should have had a had a girlfriend. Like, I think we see Denny's girlfriend in the funeral sequence. It has to be because she's mentioned yeah. and she's mentioned by name and I don't know who else it could be. Yeah. Cause, cause they, yeah, exactly. That's a, we have to assume that, but it's, it, it is a little odd now that I, I look back at that. Huh? Uh, Cameron Fry award. Now the, I think the middle schoolers are on point. They look like kids, you know, the, the young, uh, our four leads, but was there anyone too old to be a teenager here? Like maybe even some of the greasers, did anyone look, like they were in a greaser. I, I want to say Kiefer, but like only because he's Kiefer Sutherland, you know, and I just know him from other stuff and I've seen him play older at the same time. I, it seems, you know, I mean, I saw him play an immortal vampire. So like, uh, <laughs> <definitely>. <laughs> so I looked it up cause I too, I said, but he's 20 here. That's not that bad. No, so. that's the thing. He just looks older than everyone. Everyone looks, I think the rest of that crew looks, looks exceedingly young. Like, especially that dude from summer school. He looks like he could almost be in the main four crew. Like, he almost looks like he could have tried out for one of those guys. I think excellent in terms of casting here, in terms of age and just in general casting. So I had no answer for that one. This is going to get interesting, Mike. All right. I got to hand you the Manila report card. I got to hand you the red pen. But first, the cheat sheet before we grade from A to F on High School Slumber Party. 91% 91% by the critics on Rotten Tomatoes. 94% by the audience. Yeah. 4.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd, which we know is rare to get anything in the fours. These are high scores. Mike, throw those out the window. A plus to F. What, <laughs> what will you grade? Stand by me. Brian, I feel like it's been long enough and it's totally deserved, but A plus this time around. You know how I went a little trigger happy a while back and was giving everything an A, but we were just watching really great movies all the time. I couldn't help it. How do you not give society an A? How do you <laughs> how do you not? Uh, but like, you know, lately and even in the, like the Corey series, I feel like I've been trying to be a little more judgmental and like critical and honest, like when it comes to this and and come at it with more than just emotions and then put some thought into it. But this time I, I, I did all that again, but I just love this movie and I really think it's great. So I have to definitely give it an A plus. Like, I mean, I, I, I was going to say something, but it's really no comparison. I mean, I, I kind of enjoy this at my age. I enjoy this more than something like the princess bride, you know, but like that, yeah, that's the only, that's like, it's just Rob Reiner, man. Like, that's the kind of thing I think of. It's like, well, what compares to something like this? Well, another five-star movie that he made, you know? So, yeah, good on you, Robbie. Good on, way to go, Meathead. And, and there's, like, enjoyability and well-made movie, right? Like, I know a lot of people who don't like When Harry Met Sally because it says men and women can't be friends, you know? And that's not a very 2022 premise. But it's still a damn good movie. 
you know? Right, right. And that's the point, right? It's a story. It's not reality. Like, come on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what was your grade again? A plus, baby. A plus, okay. So I I gave the film... I was going to give it an A minus. I feel like giving it an A. I'll, I'll stick with my gut and give it an A minus. I think it's a great movie. I'm just deducting a couple points for... Um, it's not as timeless that I think people who love it think it is because I don't think a lot of... I don't think everyone can relate to it. However, I was pleasantly surprised on this watch. I like it more, a lot more than the Goonies, actually, on this watch. So A, A, A minus range for me. A very good movie. A very movie of the time. A homogenous movie. We, we also didn't mention it's, you know, there's only white people in this movie. Almost only males. I get all that. However, what a universal story. These kid actors are so good. What, what a place for Corey Feldman to kind of make his name, right? Uh, one of his earlier yeah. roles. Like, I know he did Friday the 13th and stuff, but that's like a horror film. This is like a film that took over a summer. And we're recording this in winter, but a great summer movie as well. A great end of summer movie. So just want to put that out there. We could have done this in the summer too. We got we got plans for the summer that may or may not pan out, but like, you, you know. Oh yeah. Summer's not worried about this summer. Summer's <laughs> always fun on High School Slumber Party. Also, for those of you too who are like, oh, they're, they're too young to be talked about on High School Slumber Party. They're literally talking about the high school classes they're going to take next year. So F you haters who don't really exist who are just on my Oh, yeah. I was going to say, who's, who's <laughs> writing in to complain? I'm not, I'm not popular enough to have real haters. Uh, just occasionally. <laughs> David Hater, the writer. Superhero movies. All right, Mike, sleeping bag. What does your Stand By Me sleeping bag look oh, like? And yeah. think about it. Very sleeping bag-esque movie because they're out. You know, I don't know if they, they're they're carrying like things that predate our modern sleeping bag, right? Like they're carrying canteens and, and blankets and stuff like that. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think Gordy's got a sleeping bag and then they just stuff everything in it. Oh, and yeah. yeah. It up and sling it over their shoulders. But uh, So what does it look like? When I was a kid, I had, you know, there were a lot of sleepovers sleep it out back that kind of we never camping in the woods but like you would sleep out back in the backyard i had this sleeping bag for like man at least a decade that i would take everywhere every time there was the opportunity called for it and it was just it was a nothing special the inside was gray the outside was blue but it was my sleeping bag and it was of you know the one i had this time you know i wish as a kid i had like a ninja turtle sleeping bag or whatever but it was more about you know being practical i guess <laughs> my parents were just like no you must be warm and comfortable instead of fashionable um so i think <laughs> i'm just i'm gonna bring my original live real live sleeping bag i had when i was a kid nice i feel like you could only go with those choices today uh you know mm -hmm. classic stuff i'm going with a world war ii military issued sleeping bag because there you go Corey feldman says that his father in the film you know stormed the beaches in normandy whether or not that's true, we don't know, you know? We can assume it's true, but he could be lying to his son. I know we're far away from it, but that just reminded me of this just throwaway line that Corey's character has, if I may, real quick. For sure. Okay, so after the end of the Lardass story, and they're kind of disappointed in the ending, Teddy says, what if Lardass goes home, shoots his father, and then joins the Texas Rangers? I was like, holy shit, shoots his father? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I love that, like how they're disappointed in the story. As a kid, I loved the story, and the kids there were like, "Oh, that's nothing, whatever," you know. But but but, but how much did Teddy just reveal about himself in that moment? You know, like hundred percent, it's so freaking dark. <laughs> like he's defending him. He's defending him the whole movie. Don't fucking talk about my dad like that. And then the first time he has a fantasy, he's like, "What if he shoots his dad?" <laughs> Complicated as f. <laughs> All right, Mike, my favorite question every week. And I feel like this Stand By Me was a blockbuster movie, you know, make Mm -hmm. it a blockbuster night and rent Stand By Me. But you and I were in the magical blockbuster that is every film that has ever existed in the history of space and time and logic and and all the timelines. We get to the the counter, we see a sign that says rent two movies, get one free. And And I say, Mike, let's make it a triple feature of an evening. We know we're renting Stand By Me, but go to the back get two other movies, what should our Stand By Me Slumber Party triple feature be? All right, Brian, I came prepared for this one. A little bit of a theme going on here tonight. I'm going to do a Rob Reiner movie and a Stephen King film. So first up, I guess we'll do the Stephen King movie or movie based on Stephen King novel. Uh, Not only that, but one that, that features Castle Rock, the town, and that is one of my favorites, Christopher Walken, The Dead Zone. Nice. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you're out there and you're aware of this, but it is directed by David Cronenberg, who is fucking weird as hell and awesome and makes very scary, intense horror movies. And this is about a guy who has an accident. And when he wakes up and touches somebody, he can see their future and he can see how they die. So... He goes a little crazy, and at one point he touches this guy who's running for senator, and he sees that in the future, if he becomes president, bad fucking things are going to happen. So (laughs) he has to assassinate this guy, but, you know, no one believes him, and I don't want to give any more away, and feel free to cut back some of the plot summary if you want to, but I love that movie. I haven't seen it in a while. I just watched another great Christopher Walken gem Movies like from this time with Christopher Walken, are, I feel, are like peak Walken. He had a renaissance at the late 90s, early 2000s, but this stuff is great. Yeah, so. before he was like pure comedy Walken, he had a run that I think yeah. uh, younger people aren't really aware of, you know. Yeah. There's this alien abduction movie, Communion, you know, based on the true story of the book and everything. And like, he's incredible in that wow. as well. I've never heard of that. That's cool. Oh, so, yeah, fantastic. So High School Slumber Party Connection with The Dead Zone. It was spun off in the early 2000s, or should yep. I say adapted the early 2000s as a TV show, starring none other than High School Slumber Party Hall of Famer, Anthony Michael Hall. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Love that. Yeah, I ran for a while. I remember that being on Sci-Fi Channel or something. Yeah, so that's that's my Stephen King one. Speaking of the High School Slumber Party Hall of Fame, I can't believe it took me this long to mention it. How about the fact that Corey, uh, Corey Haim was elected and Corey Feldman wasn't? Oh my God! Yeah, only one Corey we got in this year. More on that later. We we should open up an episode with that, not bury it at the end. Here, but... <laughs> not close it. <laughs> but yeah, so your first choice is the Dead Zone. What's your next choice? So I mentioned this before, and I gotta. I mean, I just rewatched this, and it's like it holds up so well. It's just so incredibly funny and stupid and ridiculous and just brilliant. But Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap, directed by Rob Reiner. This is Spinal Tap. This is Spinal Tap. Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, 
Harry Shearer. I mean, would there would there be like Upright Citizens Brigade? Would there be all that kind of stuff? Like, I, I mean, maybe we'd be better off without it. But I don't. No, I mean, I mean look, like, look, that that yeah, I just I just I improv. I'm just improving. <laughs> I saw this before, you know, like The Simpsons. Okay, so like I didn't even realize what like how sophisticated this stuff really was at the time because like that's the key i feel like they figured out like you can't get this stupid unless you're that smart you know like you can't you can't play this dumb this well unless you're like a comedic genius and somehow like they all got together and they made this fucking experiment and it worked and and it's like spawned like an entire sub subgenre of like the fake documentary i feel it's like i mean i think albert brooks did one uh, earlier so it might not be a completely new concept but still like the idea i feel like all came together with this movie and i don't know it's just it's incredible so good so good love it and i love that selection those are three awesome movies you got a king one a reiner one and a combo here so i'm feeling good about this year's Corey films and starting with Stand By Me here. So, Mike, thanks so much for hopping on and talking this one. And slumbers, you'll be hearing from a lot of Mike these days. (laughs) Big thank you to Mike Manzi, as always. Like I said, you'll be hearing a lot of him on the ISO Slumber Party, especially with this Corey series. Just want to remind you guys that he's also on some great podcasts here on the network, The Monsters That Made Us, Original Cage Club, Keanu Club. How about his his beautiful, beautiful venture, Third Time's a Charm, where he covers the third film of every franchise that has ever existed, ever. Him and I and our good friend, the foodie films man Kyle, this morning were actually having an internet conversation about the third Highlander film, so maybe I'll cover that one day. Who knows? But love having Mike on. What a, what a godsend he is in my life, because who else would do this journey with me, really? <laughs> so thank you, thank you, Mike. Speaking of Corey, and speaking of Mike, we're going to do another Corey film next for Monday. And the film will be called Demolition High. Watch it. Here's the trailer. Okay. There is no trailer online. That's how obscure this film is, I guess. But the film is really accessible you could find it on youtube i believe so your homework is to watch a film called demolition high and it has Corey haim not Corey feldman Corey haim we started with a feldman we're doing a haim next demolition high can't wait to talk about it with mike and one more thing before i let you go remember that life moves pretty fast if you don't stop looking around once in a while you could miss it so many great classic songs on this soundtrack let's go with yakety yak by the coasters you all know it later dudes Take out the papers and the trash Or you don't get no spending cash If you don't scrub that kitchen floor You ain't gonna rock and roll no more Yak-a-yak. Don't talk back Just finish cleaning up your room Let's see that dust out with that broom Get all that garbage out of sight Or you don't go out Friday night don't go back. You just put on your coat and hat and walk yourself to the laundry mat. And when you finish, you're still here. Bring in the dog and put out it's over. Don't go back. Go home.
mercado. 